Amen. If you have your Bibles, open up to 2 Samuel chapter 4. 2 Samuel chapter 4. I do want to remind you not to come here next week. Um, you want to show up at the park uh, next week. And uh, Woody kind of uh, maybe undersold the fact I probably would really honestly wouldn't wear a tie uh, in all sincerity. And so I thought we kind of left the door a little too open for Nathan there to put his suit on next week. And um, he's been looking for a suit that comes with shorts to wear to church outside the walls. But uh, <laughs> just hasn't found the right one yet. And um, they're all flat front. There's no, no pleats. Anyway, so um, all that being said, uh, let me just say what a joy it is to be able to get ready for Church Outside the Walls. So excited about it and looking forward to it. And we do have uh, at the end of the service today, just a little announcement. Hang tight at the end of the service. I'll be coming back up to make a little announcement about Reach Week and uh, something exciting that's an opportunity for us this week. So look forward to that here in just a little bit as well. So um, if you have your Bibles open to 2 Samuel chapter 4, just go ahead and stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. The author writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way, that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to us. Beginning of verse 1. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Benah, and the name of the other Rechab, sons of Rimmon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth, for Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gitaim and have been sojourners there to this day. Uh, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Rimmon, the Berethite, Rechab and Benah set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Benah, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death, and then they beheaded him. And they took his head and went by the way of the Arabah, all night, and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Benah, his brother, the sons of Rimon, the Berethite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed him and cut off their hands, killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool of Hebron. And they took, but they took the hand of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Let's pray together. 
O Lord, our God, would you open our hearts and minds today to receive your word. Father, I pray we would be changed by your word this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's unquestionably an understatement to say that the great British Prime Minister Winston Churchill had a way with words. In fact, we know him probably as the greatest rhetorician of the 20th century. Edward Murrow, in fact, said Winston Churchill mobilized the English language and sent it into battle. Whenever I find myself in a little bit of the doldrums, I'll go back and read some of Churchill's wartime speeches just to feel inspired and ready, ready to go again. I, I love to read what Churchill uh, has to say by way of inspiration. However, he was just as adept at deploying the English language in brutal takedowns, uh, in quips and in humor. Once, a woman told him, if I were married to you, I'd put poison in your coffee. And Churchill said, if I were married to you, I'd drink it. Churchill once uh, described someone as a modest man who has much to be modest about. And I think my favorite Churchill insult was probably when he called another politician a sheep in sheep's clothing. Uh, This morning, it's a sad spectacle to see the line of the once great and mighty King Saul reduced down to a sheep in sheep's clothing, trembling on the throne of Israel. You see what the Bible says? Chapter 4, verse 1. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. This phrase, his courage failed, literally means his hands went weak. It's a sign it's the way the author is talking about and describing the impotence of Ishbosheth to lead or to fight or to do anything else. This is what the line of Saul has been reduced to. This morning, we realize how deeply and how strongly we long for a righteous king. A righteous king. Now, one of the challenges we have in this world is we sort of feel like there are two options. A wolf in sheep's clothing or a sheep in sheep's clothing, don't we? Somebody who's bold and brash and strong enough to get the job done but really isn't quite righteous. Or someone who's righteous enough for us to admire but they're really not bold enough or strong enough to get the job done. We struggle to try to see those two realities balanced together. This morning, I want to show you three points about our longing for a righteous king. Three points about our longing, our deep longing, the longing in our hearts for a righteous king. And I want to show you what I think the author of Samuel is trying to teach us about that longing this morning. Three points uh, today. Here's the first. God's judgment is just. God's judgment is is just. In in our longing for a righteous king, one of the things we long for is just judgment. Just judgment. As we learn about Ishbosheth and his great fear, uh, we then get introduced to a cast of characters who will be important in this chapter, and one of them important for chapters to come. 
Uh, the first two that we meet are two captains of raiding bands. Uh, these must be some pretty rough and tumble guys. These are guys who put uh, boot leather on the ground when it comes to going out and fighting the battles. These are some, some guys who are ready to fight and who are out on the front lines of battle, Bana and Rechab. And they're sons of Rimmon, and it's important. The author wants us to note, he mentions this multiple times, these men were Benjamites. These men were of, uh, they were kin to Saul. They were from the tribe of Saul. So again, he, it is really important to the author to show us that David is not complicit in treachery. It's important that the author shows us that. He, he, he's trying to make sure that's clear. So he wants to show us where these guys came from. There's also something that feels a little strange here, a little verse here that tells us about one of Jonathan's sons. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. And he was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now, you've got to understand how tightly connected kingship was to fighting in the ancient world to understand why it's important to note that Mephibosheth was crippled, the Bible says. He was disabled in his feet. He couldn't walk. Because the king had to lead the people in battle. It was important that the king lead the people in battle. What the author is trying to help us see is that all that the line of Saul has left to lead is Ishbosheth. There's really uh, the only other person that might could take over is Mephibosheth, and he is unfit to lead. Now, that might sound strange to us because of the way our military and our federal leadership are, thankfully, in a lot of ways, separated in the United States of America. You don't have to be a general or something like that to be a uh, uh, president. In fact, one of the greatest presidents we've ever had, arguably, was FDR, and he finished his time in office in a wheelchair. And so it's odd for us to think about why that might disqualify someone from leadership. But to be a king, you had to be a great martial leader in the ancient world. That's unquestionably the case. All that being said, Mephibosheth is being inserted here as a reminder that the, the line of Saul was really down to Ishbosheth in terms of capable leadership. The author twice highlights in the telling of the story of what these two men, Bena and Rechab, did. He twice highlights the treachery of what they did. I, I want to let the Bible speak for itself for just a moment here. Notice what verse 5 said. These sons of Rimon, they set out about the heat of the day, and they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat. That kind of maybe perhaps explains how they got in the house. How did they get past the security detail? And they stabbed Ishbosheth in the stomach, and then they escaped. Now, verse 7 tells the story again. And some people hear this, and they see these either as contradictory, or they see these as sort of two traditions of thought, or they're just confused by why there would be two verses back-to-back -back sort of telling the same story like this. This is typical of the way the Bible and the Old Testament in particular tells stories. You will often have something told the first time in a more simple way and then an expansion in the second way. And oftentimes in the way this is told and the way is it is expanded, as de more details are given in the second telling, we begin to get an idea of what the author is trying to teach us as he tells us the story. Now I want you to notice something here. The bare details are there both times, the murder of Ishbosheth. But in verse 7, listen to what they, the author says. Verse 7. 
And when they came to his house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. And they took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night. Do you notice the thing that the author really tries to make sure we know both times? I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's a flashing red light in the text. Ishbosheth was asleep when he was killed. He was resting in his home. They snuck in when he was asleep. They snuck in when he couldn't defend himself. Over and over and over again, the author is trying to remind us what these men did was wrong. It, it was a wrong way to do this. It was truly an assassination. And really, it was an assassination that went beyond the pale because it was men who were sworn to serve Ishbosheth who did it. And so they took his head as an example, as proof of what they had done. For seeing, a, and they escaped through the Arabah. This is a, a valley through which there would have been very few travelers. And so in their escape to go show this to David, they went the road less traveled. So what do these two do? For seeing a power vacuum from which David would emerge victorious and losing their strategic connection to the house of David. It's Abner. I want you to remember this. Once... Uh, Ishbosheth had been frustrated with Abner's leadership and Abner's strength. Abner was really the true strength behind the reign and rule of Ishbosheth, and he had insulted him over a woman. And so Abner had gone and begun the process of trying to give the northern kingdoms of Israel over to David. And so these two guys realize Ishbosheth sitting there with his knees knocking. On the throne, he's nervous wreck. He didn't know what to do. Our good connection in the military is gone. We need to show that we're loyal because on the other end of this, we want to make sure that we're serving the new king. And so thing, I think I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll just murder Ishbosheth. We'll take his head to David. And what will happen is when we get to David with the head of Ishbosheth, he'll realize I want to be kings of the northern tribes of Israel. And these two, uh, these two captains of raiding bands are probably due a promotion. I think I need a couple of new generals in my army. And so they, in losing their strategic connection to the house of David, for seeing this power vacuum, they come to David with the head of Ishbosheth. And by now, as we've seen the character of David throughout these early chapters of the book of Samuel, 2 Samuel, we begin to realize that David responds just exactly like we would expect him to. And that's how we ought to respond in the same situation. Uh, David is not happy with that. We'll talk about that just a little bit more, but he responds very uh, differently than what they expected. Now, I want us to consider this for a moment. We read this story and we look at this and we say, what, what gives? <laughs> what, what, we, what do we even make of this? Right? Because if, if you've read 1 Samuel, if you're familiar with the storyline at all, had God not rejected Saul as king? Of course he had. Was it not just of God to reject Saul as king? Of course it was. Had, had God not rejected Saul's line from being king? Yes, he had. In fact, Ishbosheth was not truly God's man in Israel. You, you'll notice that even in a moment when David responds to these murderers, he very, you'll notice what he says. He calls Ishbosheth a righteous man, but what he doesn't do is call him the Lord's anointed. He doesn't call him the Lord's king. Saul had been anointed by God as king, Ishbosheth had not. He had not been set up. He was an usurper to the throne. And so it was right and just for God to reject Saul's line. It was right and just for God to eliminate them from the throne. And yet, 
And yet, the way these two men went about it was for the wrong reasons and in the wrong way. There there was no fear of God in their actions or their words. Uh, we, We recognize God's judgment is just that God can do what God wants to do. But at the same time, we also recognize the conflict we have in the world we live in, living in a fallen world, living in a Genesis 3 world. We recognize that sometimes the way things go about do not seem to be according to God's revealed will, what God has told us to do in the Scriptures. We have to reconcile those things. We struggle with those things. We look at Ishbosheth's demise and recognize it's a result of the judgment of God on the house of Saul. But we also look at the actions of Bana and Rechab and we recognize that they were unjust and ungodly. And, and I want to just say something about how careful we need to be here as Christians. We need to be so careful here as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot allow a good belief, like our belief in the sovereignty of God, God's in control, uh, that God is moving history toward a purpose in Christ, that God is good and means good. We cannot allow our belief in the sovereignty of God to allow us to flatten out the world as it is and to assume that all actions are okay because of the will of God. This has gotten Christian people in trouble all throughout history. Just reading the other day and being reminded of the way that during the Crusades, people would say things and people would begin to chant, thus God wills it, thus God wills it, God wills it, God wills it. Assuming that plot A or plot B is the will of God. It's a scary place to be. And in the same way, you can see the way that the motives of these two men are wrong and sinful and ungodly, even as they achieve something God intended to do ultimately like what what do scenes like this do for us that feeling you have it's a desire for a righteous king it's a desire for a righteous king one who doesn't have to leave the throne one who knows what's right at all times who does what's right at all times who brings his reign to bear in the world in such a way that all things are done with righteousness and equity at all times it's tough to long for those things, but we long for righteousness to reign, for the world to be made right, for God to make things as they should be. This is one of the things a text like this ought to do in our hearts is remind us of, of the desire we have for a righteous king to carry out just judgment at all times. That's the first point. God's judgment is just. But the second point is this God's purpose is ultimate. God's purpose is ultimate. They bring the head to David, and um, they expect this to be exciting. But notice what the Bible says. Well, no, let, me, let me show you first in verse 8. Here is the head of Ishbosheth, they tell David. Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. Who, who has the Lord avenged? David. On who? On Saul and on his offspring. Verse 9. But David answered Rechab and Bana, his brother, the sons of Rimon, the Berethite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. 
And he goes on to say, he talks about this messenger that comes to him in 2 Samuel 1, thinking that killing Saul would be a cause for celebration and promotion. He says, if I put him to death, how much more will I require this blood from you? Think about this for just a moment. First of all, notice how the men understood what they did. The Lord avenged my Lord the king this day on Saul and his offspring. Verse 8. Ah, but David had shown, had he not? David had demonstrated time and again that he had no personal animosity towards Saul. Nor did he have certainly personal animosity toward his offspring. It's almost unquestionable that in his time in the court of Saul, that in his friendship with Jonathan, that David had some level of a relationship with Ishbosheth as well. This is someone he knew. He loved Saul. He loved Jonathan. He loved Saul and his offspring. David is not thinking about this in terms of his own personal rule, his own personal reign, his own personal insults. David is not a mafia boss here. So you come and disrespect me here at my daughter's wedding or something like that. No, what he's saying is this. I am an instrument in the hands of God. If God wants to make me king, he'll make me king. If God doesn't, he doesn't. But what matters is what God wants to do. In fact, David acknowledges this in his response to them. I love what he says, as the Lord lives. As the Lord lives lives who has redeemed me out of every adversity it's not about me it's about God and God so far has redeemed me out of every adversity and I don't need a couple of hot-headed mercenaries to bring me the head of Ishbosheth for God to redeem me out of another adversity David is saying essentially get behind me Satan they, they are trying to get him to take the kingdom by force and over and over and over again he refuses to do that He distances himself from the wickedness and he has the murderers executed and has their hands cut off showing and demonstrating the fact that he has no part and wants no part of the wickedness, the blood guilt that's on their hands. Why, my friends, why doesn't David embrace revenge against Saul? There's not one person in the room that at some level in their heart wouldn't enjoy having a little revenge after they were treated the way David was treated by Saul. In fact, you you have to believe that there's some level at which David wanted revenge. In fact, he almost took it a couple of times, did he not? In 1 Samuel. Why is he punishing those that any other king would likely reward? Uh, Friends, David is recognizing something that all of us need to recognize. God's purpose is is what's ultimate. You see, David's life, David's kingship, all of these actions that are happening, David recognizes they point to something larger than himself. He reflects on this in the 8th Psalm when he says to the Lord, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And what does he say in just a moment in that Psalm? He says, he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you should think of him. He's saying is, why me? Why, why my role in this? You have a bigger purpose than what's happening in my little life. He, he's recognizing that God has a purpose in making him king that has very little to do with his personal aspirations, 
his personal righteousness, his personal abilities, his personal vendettas, his personal successes and failures. No, David is recognizing that God is at work in brewing a glory in his life that is greater than himself. It's greater even than the grand events of court intrigue and the rise and fall of dynasties. God is up to something in David's life and God is and David is recognizing if I if I sink to the, to the bottom and I sink to the level of petty vengeance and small, bitter rivalries, then I am betraying what God is really up to. It's not about me. It's about God. David reflects on this himself in the Psalms, not only in Psalm 8, but in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110 is a reflection on the way that even David's victories in battle are smaller than the big victory that God is planning to achieve through David's Lord, who we now, of course, know to be the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Consider this for a moment. David is recognizing that God's purpose is ultimate, and we all need a good dose of the same thing. We all need a good dose of remembering God's purpose in the world. Remembering that God is up to something in the gospel. And this could be from something as big as a big fight that's going on in your family right now, with all sorts of rivalries and accusations and things like that, to something as small as getting cut off in traffic on Rainbow Drive. Just anything in between. Maybe we could use a good dose of God's purpose is bigger than what's going on in our lives. We need to let the personal trivialities of our lives shrink to an appropriate size by getting a big vision of God's purpose in Christ. Maybe that leads us to our last point, and it's this. Not only is God's judgment just, not only is God's purpose ultimate, but the re- the, this really reminds us that we long for a righteous king. We long for a righteous King, let's take a moment just to stop and take an assessment of what we're seeing in these early chapters of 2 Samuel, these early episodes of 2 Samuel. The author is really trying to help us see something, and it's this. David did not promote himself to the throne of Israel. That's what these stories are here for. This is, this is why we're going to these great lengths to learn about these guys who killed Ishbosheth and to learn about this Amalekite messenger who reports back about Saul and showing the long story about Abner and Asahel and all these different situations. It's showing the way that all these machinations and, and everything else happened. And it wasn't David who was behind the scenes pulling the strings. David is innocent of these things. Why is it that that's so important to the biblical author? Uh, These stories, this author, and the ultimate author, the Holy Spirit, why are they wanting, are they really trying to put all this here? What's the greater reality to which they are pointing us? Perhaps I might say that it's our longing for a righteous king. Our longing for a righteous king. I think we gravitate to David. And I think we tend to overstate how good David was. To maybe do some revisionist history, to turn our assessment of David into a little bit of hagiography, just over-praising him a little bit, because 
We long to see a righteous king reign. We want to see somebody do it the right way. We want to see somebody who is both strong and meek. Who is both mighty and humble. Isn't that why God judged Saul? Isn't that why God put David on the throne? Not just to replace a bad king with a good king. In fact, you'll notice as we go through 2 Samuel, time and time again, David will repeat the mistakes of Saul. What is God ultimately doing? God is giving us a righteous king. But his name's not David. The Lord said to David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. All of these stories are types and shadows that point us to one of David's sons, our true King, our Lord, Jesus Christ. He tasted God's judgment for us so that we might have God's righteousness. He did not promote Himself to the throne of heaven. In fact, He was on the throne of heaven forever and ever before the world ever began. But instead, when He came into the world, instead of grasping Godhood, instead He emptied Himself and He entrusted Himself to the Father in order that the Father might exalt Him at the proper time. He trusted God's purpose even when it was difficult to do my friends God has given us a mighty and strong king who at the cross stepped on the devil's neck did he not he cast the strong man out and yet God has also given us a humble and gentle and lowly king who upended the world order, who defeated the powers and principalities, who took the devil to the final blow through weakness at the cross. He died for our sins. God has given us a mighty and victorious king who is also gentle and lowly. The perfect reconciliation of all that we long for in a righteous king is perfectly embodied in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is neither a sheep in sheep's clothing, nor is He a wolf in sheep's clothing. He is the one who hits the wolf in the mouth with the shepherd's staff. He is the one who is led like a sheep to the slaughter. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. He is truly a righteous king, a king who judges perfectly, a king who is himself the purpose of God for all of history. And my friends, my brothers, my sisters, the Scripture tells us that a day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I ask you today, have you bowed your knee before Him? Have you trusted Him? Do you serve this King? And do you see the way that all of your dreams, all of your hopes, all of your desires are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. The hopes and dreams of all the years, the hopes and fears of all the years are reconciled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you trust Him today? I want to offer an invitation 
to each of you this morning. If you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus, I want you to know your longing for a righteous king. <laughs> You're probably sitting there right now thinking, I can't, I can't trust Jesus. He's going he's gonna to want to run my life. Oh, little do you know that that freedom that you think you're basking in is actually a desire to serve the Lord Jesus. There's true freedom in serving Him. There's true freedom in knowing Him. There's true freedom in submitting to Him. It feels counterintuitive, but today, would you let go of your pride and bow your knee to your King? If you turn from your sins and repentance and turn to God in faith, through Jesus, I believe you will be saved. If you need someone to talk to, you come forward today. Second of all, you may be a believer and you may say, Pastor, I, I'm not living like I have a king like I should. I would invite you to come forward today. If you need someone to pray with, if you want to do business with the Lord right where you are, if you want to come to this altar and pray, grab a friend. This time is for you to do business with the Lord. And finally, what a joy it would be for me to talk to you about what it means to be a member here at First Baptist Church. After this prayer, I want to invite you to come. I want to invite you to do business with the Lord. Let's pray together.